Welcome, Will Father Mitchell Welcome to EWTN Live. Tonight, we will be reminded of the universality of our Catholic faith, especially as we recall how the ancient church in Africa made profound contributions to Christianity in the areas of theology, liturgy, biblical studies, and Christian culture. Before we get to that, we want to speak briefly with EWTN's Jack Rooms about the EWTN Catholic Radio Conference that's coming up next month. Jack, what's going on for that conference? Well, it's that time of year again, Father Mitch. You know, so, uh, we talk all the time about Mother Angelica starting the shortwave radio venture in 1992. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And in 1996, AM and FM affiliates started coming on board. We have over 400 of them now carrying our programming in the United States and over 600 worldwide when you include English and Spanish. And most of these folks were not radio people when they got into this game. That's right. Most of them weren't even business people when they got into this game. Some of them couldn't balance a checkbook when they started this, but they were just answering Mother Angelica's call, uh, the call that came from our Lord through Mother Angelica uh, to them. So we try to provide some um, spiritual and professional development for them every year. We have this radio conference this year. It'll be October 18th, 19th, and 20th right here in Birmingham. Uh, on Wednesday the 18th, we always have a day-long pilgrimage to the Shrine of the Most Blessed Sacrament where we'll celebrate Mass, we'll hear some talks, they can visit Mother Angelica's final resting place, uh, we'll pray the rosary, uh, they can visit the gift shop, uh, visit with the nuns, hopefully, and uh, just a great day all around. And then on Thursday, we'll be at the Winfrey Hotel, as we always are. We'll have a beautiful day of, uh, of uh, development with workshops and, and uh, professional development tools for the affiliates that have come in. We're going to have a keynote address in the morning by Bishop Michael Sis from the Diocese of San Angelo. Mm -hmm. And he knows a thing or two about evangelism now because he yes. was the director of the Newman Center at Texas A&M University when that mm -hmm. place exploded a few years ago and the numbers just grew and grew and grew. Uh, yeah. under his leadership. Yeah, and matter of fact, that had knocked down the church and build a brand new one because there was no room. <clears throat> That's exactly right. So he'll be giving our, delivering our keynote address. Uh, our chairman of the board and chief executive officer, Michael Warsaw, will be uh, on hand. And then we'll have our annual awards dinner on Thursday evening uh, where we'll recognize uh, some of the accomplishments and some of the longevity of some of our affiliates now getting up into the 25 and 30 year range for being an EWTN affiliate. And on Friday, we're going to take them to the Birmingham Botanical Gardens and uh, just have a little time of fellowship and uh, share a meal together out there. So it's going to be fantastic. Not only are our affiliates coming, but anybody who maybe does not have an AM or FM Catholic radio station in their area and would like to learn how they can work towards bringing one to their area. They can come to the radio conference. It would be great for them. Uh, if you're on the board of one of these radio stations, register yourself and come on down and see what we're doing down here. And um, you can do that at EWTNCRC.com. That's EWTNCRC.com. And even though we're in Alabama, we don't roll tide. We don't roll Tumor's Corner. We just roll out the gospel and see what the Lord does. There you go. Amen. I like it. And those botanical gardens are fantastic. I love yeah. that place. Yeah. Thank you, Jack. Appreciate it. We'll be back in a couple of minutes with tonight's guest, so please stay with us.
Welcome back. Good to have you with us. And our guest tonight is here to take us back to our roots in the early church. He's here to remind us that the development of our Roman liturgy and some of our most important theological ideas came from Africa, especially North Africa, or what the ancients would refer to as the Roman province of Africa. We're talking about areas that we know today as Morocco, Algeria, Tunisia, and Libya, but also extremely important in this is Egypt and the Kingdom of Ethiopia. So please welcome the Executive Vice President of the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology and the author of a new book, Africa and the Early Church, The Almost Forgotten Roots of Catholic Christianity. Mr. Mike Aquilina. Mike, good to have you here with us. Father Mitch, thanks for having me back. You know, one of the first things I want to say to our audience, because this is an area of church history that is peripherally known. People know a little bit about St. Augustine, maybe, and a couple others. But I, I want to encourage them, because you wrote in a very accessible style. You know, this is, you don't pile on, you know, the footnotes. They're, they're there, and there's sources you can go to look for more. But, you know, you keep it focused on, you know, the topic, and you uh, do what I like to call translating scholaries into English. <laughs> well, I, I often say I, I'm, I'm writing the books that I want to read. Yeah, right? yeah. Because I'm not writing for academics. I'm not an academic. I don't want to write for scholars. I want people to have access to the work, the great work that scholars are doing right now. Yes. And exactly. it's not getting out there to people. It's not yeah. going to be in the newspaper, for example. <laughs> where are you going to, where well, are you going to read Well, thanks be to God for that. <laughs> At least this way they get from you what actually is being said. Mm. So, you know, the, the scholars are, are, are so important. Yes. But they also need to be brought to other folks, mm -hmm. and that's what you're doing here. Now, one of the, the other things, too, I already mentioned it, uh, you have Africa in three parts. Uh, the, the part of, uh, it's not all of Africa. It, it doesn't deal with later developments as, you know, we, the church entered into uh, sub-Sahara Africa. But it is Africa and, you know, in these three areas of Ethiopia, Egypt, and the western, northwestern part of Africa, known as North Africa. These are the parts of, of, of Africa, really, uh, where Christianity took root in the first several centuries, the yes. first three, four centuries yes. of the church's history. Now, the, it's, uh, this part of Africa should be pointed out is very rich culturally. There are a lot of societies that settled in yes. Africa. Talk, talk just a little bit about, you know, who some of these different groups were, like Berbers. Oh, right. So you had these people who had resettled uh, in that area. There was a lot of migration then, as there is now. So you have the Berbers there. You have, um, you have, you have um, 
you have people speaking Punic, okay? So these are Phoenicians who had resettled. They had, they're the, the, the Canaanites mm -hmm. in, in the Old Testament, and they had moved that way and settled in, in North Africa. So those people would have been occupying the land that later St. Augustine, St. Monica were living in. Uh, it's quite likely that St. Monica uh, had Berber or origin. Her name seems to be a Berber name. Mm -hmm. So this would have been his background and, sure. and the language that he, he grew up hearing as well as Latin. And something that you bring out that's important for our world, where I think especially since the uh, 1700s and 1800s to the present, uh, there's a large focus on race. Mm -hmm. uh, I think sometimes Unfortunately, uh, Charles Darwin contributed notions of evolution to race that were absolutely false yes. um, and, and, and dumb. And they were novelties. Yeah, yeah, they, they, but in the time that we're discussing, race didn't matter. Like you had a great line in there. Their sin wasn't racism. They cared more about class education and wealth yeah, especially That's, wealth yeah especially especially wealth mm -hmm. uh, you know if you but even if you were wealthy but were not part of the old patrician families yeah you're just not with the right families that's what they're concerned right but the, the, the mixture of races in Africa was pretty thorough yeah, you know Augustine takes note <coughs> of it once in his voluminous works he makes note once in passing he says he says, I'm from Africa, and he said, people from Ethiopia are darker skinned than I am. People from Gaul are lighter skinned than I am. Gaul being modern day France. Modern day France. So he recognized that there are people of different skin tones, but he did not see that as, as a reason to make any kind of qualitative cultural no. judgment on them yeah. or, or, or any other kind of judgment. It's just a fact of, of human physiology. Yeah. And I've I've read lots of ancient literature. Nobody cared about that. Yeah. They really didn't. But what they do come to care about is their religion, too. And tell us, first of all, about that northwest Africa, that Roman province of Africa. What do we know about the beginnings of Christianity there? Well, the beginnings are pretty murky because the exactly. beginnings of Christianity are murky in almost every area on the map. We don't know who brought the faith there. What we find in the documentary record is that around 170, suddenly Christianity is there. It's very well developed and very public. The first document we have from, from that area is the Acts of the Silicon Martyrs. Mm -hmm. And it's a court transcript. It's just a transcript of their interrogation, their judgment, their sentence, and, uh, and their execution at the end. Mm -hmm. So it's just a, a simple judicial record mm -hmm. that you could buy from the court stenographer, right? Uh, but it shows us a church where uh, people were very literate, they were very intelligent, uh, and, and they, were, they were pretty at ease in the Christian vocabulary, which says that Christianity has been around a while. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and, of course, the, the, the judge, the magistrate there, understands a bit about Christianity as well. So he must have been familiar with it. Um, it's not a new phenomenon. So we don't know the beginnings. What we know is that around 170, quite suddenly, 
Christianity is there in full force. By 190, Tertullian is boasting that all the fields of endeavor in the city of Carthage were, were, were occupied by Christians. Mm -hmm. he, he laughs at the end of this passage, we've, we've taken everything, we've left you only your temples. Yes. And this, this is a couple things here to, to note. Um, we've talked that some of the people there were Berbers. In fact, they're still, the Berbers are still around. Uh, my oh, yeah. father uh, came across the Berbers in the Atlas Mountains mm -hmm. uh, in North Africa when he was there fighting with the Allies, of course, uh, in the war. And so they're, they're still around. Mm -hmm. uh, but then you had the biggest city in that Northwest Africa was? Carthage. Yes. Carthage. And of course, Carthage had a rich history by then. It had been a dominant power. You find it there as the, uh, as the great power, uh, one of the great world powers uh, in, in Virgil's Aeneid, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, and of course, Rome had been at war with Carthage for more than a hundred years, fought three wars that were bloody wars, a lot of casualties, aroused Rome's. a lot of hatred, a lot of rage, and finally Rome was just determined to destroy Carthage and did. In fact, the, to this day, the naval battle, the largest naval battle uh, with loss of life and everything that ever fought in history was between Rome and Carthage. Mm -hmm. But Rome eventually wiped out Carthage and then rebuilt it. And colonized it. It made it a Roman colony, all right? So you have people speaking Berber, you have people speaking Punic, and they're, they're there. They're pushed out of the, the center of gravity, really, and the, the Romans move in. They're speaking Latin. And an interesting thing happens. It becomes an important Roman colony. It becomes an important locus of Latin culture. In fact, it becomes a more important locus of Latin culture than Italy does. For like centuries, the first three Christian centuries, you find more significant Roman literature, Latin literature, coming out of Carthage than out of Rome. Mm -hmm. So you have, in the pagan world, you have the novelist Apuleius, you have the playwright Terence, you have Fronto, the rhetorician, mm -hmm. um, you have uh, um, the historian... Uh, uh, Tacitus? No, 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 he's not from there. No, no, I'll come, I'll, I'll come yeah. to it. But you have a lot of important writers who are still read today, in translation, if you study classics, if you study humanities, these are the people you have to study. Um, so you, you have that going on. What's interesting is that Christianity arises just at, at this time, where there's a literary and cultural renaissance happening in Carthage, right? So the most significant Latin Christian writers of centuries two, three, and four become African Christians, mostly two and three, I should say. Uh, but, but then in four, you get some pretty important figures, too. Mm -hmm. uh, at the beginning, you have Tertullian, who's the first Latin theologian. And at the same time, Tertullian is writing his great works, his apologies, his anti-heretical works, his original theological work. You have Pope Victor in Rome, who's an African. And, and really, one of the only popes of that time whose writings are preserved. So again, he's a flower of 
this, this uh, renaissance that's going on. Tertullian is one of the great voices of that time. He's the one who introduced words like trinity into our vocabulary, mm -hmm. sacrament. He gave us the words that we Westerners are still using today. Mm -hmm. And there, then from then it kind of exploded. After, after Tert Tertullian, you have Perpetua and her great prison di diary, which becomes an instant bestseller in the Christian world. You have Cyprian, the Bishop of Carthage, who's another great rhetorician and, uh, and, and produced letters and treatises and, and also um, collections of scriptures for priests to use in their homilies, all kinds and, of practical things. And not only, uh, and Cyprian is one of my favorite characters because he's not only <laughs> a great writer. Yeah. His homilies on the Lord's Prayer are still read in the Liturgy of the Hours uh, in the Roman Rite, but he also opened up, in fact, he invented the concept of a hospital. Yes. During right. a plague, they, the Christians opened up a hospital that was open to everybody, not only Christians, but to everybody. And that, the evidence of that is there in his letters and in, his, and, and in his, his other works. He's insistent that you can't just treat your co-religionists. You have to treat the persecutors as well which would have been scandalous. Like imagine, you know, you're, 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 you, you find, you're a doctor, and here's the guy, they're bringing him in on a stretcher, here's the guy who killed your, your, your sister and your brother-in-law, right? Mm -hmm. And you have to treat him now? Cyprian says, yes, you do. And this was transformative. This idea had never been there in the civilizational bloodstream before that moment. Yeah, no, Chris, uh, and. Uh, I remember being in Nashville, Tennessee, where the convent of the Dominican Sisters was used as a hospital for uh, Northerners, federal uh, troops, as well as Confederate troops. They didn't care. That, that mentality that started there with Cyprian has continued on through the centuries with hospitals, but also we care for everybody and we don't exclude uh, enemies, no matter what side you're on. So you have this flourishing that goes on. As I said, there are all these great writers coming out of Roman Africa, and the influence is, is flowing from Carthage to Rome. It's not the other way around. You don't have Rome influencing the Christian literature of Africa so much. It's very interesting to me that the only great Roman Christian writer from this period is Minucius Felix, Felix mm -hmm. Marcus Minucius Felix, who was born in Carthage. So he's an African lawyer relocated to Rome, working in Rome and writing Christian apologetics, and he's the major Roman writer of that period. Yeah. It's uh, some, and this is not really applicable precisely, but it would be as if uh, instead of London being the source of great literature, New York all of a sudden did, and you know, re replaced it. Uh, that would be the equivalent. Yes. You know, the, 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 the original city, had, in many ways, the, the city of Rome was becoming parasitic. Uh, yes. It was a parasite that all of this stuff was sent in as taxes to feed the people of Rome. Slaves were doing all the work and there were no jobs. So people were just living off of, you know, what was sent for, by taxes to Rome. And they'd become uncreative. Right. They had everything 
taken care of for them and they weren't very creative. Right, right, right. So it's likely that there was a Latin liturgy in Carthage 50 years, some historians say 100 years, before there was a Latin liturgy in Rome. Well, what did they use in Rome? In Rome, they were more likely to use Greek. Yeah. Rome was conservative and it was using uh, the language of international trade and international uh, diplomacy. Mm -hmm. And that would be Greek. It would coin a Greek, right? So, so you, you had the liturgy in that language, which would have made sense because that's, that's, that would have been the language used in the first century when the faith reached Rome. But by, by that time, most people were speaking Latin. It was the, it was the vulgar language. Um, in, 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 uh, in Carthage, it became the liturgical language and eventually uh, Rome picked up picked up from Carthage, you know, and learned, learned from what they were doing. It's, it's, it seems likely that the Latin liturgy we have is largely borrowed from what was going on in Carthage. Mm -hmm. And it seems that whenever there was a liturgical fashion that emerged, like a little bit later than that, there was a fashion for offertory chant. Well, it would begin in Africa, and pretty soon whatever was happening in Africa would find its way to Rome, and it would be all the rage in Rome maybe 20 years later. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I haven't been able to find the source for this. Uh, I've been looking for it, but I, I do remember reading that the first anti-pope that ever rose was St. Hippolytus. Yes. And that one of the reasons, there, there are a number of reasons for him uh, becoming a schismatic, but he w objected to the Latin liturgy. So we never celebrated mass in Latin. And he in fact is the author of the second Eucharistic prayer, but it was composed in Greek. It would make sense because if you read his apostolic tradition, it's very much concerned with claiming to be the conservative record for liturgy, right? right. We are preserving the apostolic tradition. Although it, it seems to, to recognize a good bit of of uh, improvisation going on yes. and, and recognizing the problem with that as well. Yes. Um, but it, it, it seems very much in his character to uh, push back against a movement toward the vernacular. Yeah, toward, yeah, and which for him, the vernacular in his day was Latin. That's right. Yeah, you know, and, and again, just so folks understand, at the time of Christ, half of the people living in Rome spoke Greek half of them, you know, it, it, so it wasn't, you know, an oddity, it was pretty normal to yes. speak Greek. So we see the refinement really going on in Roman Africa, and it's going on in the church in Roman Africa at the same time. Mm -hmm. And in addition, uh, Tertullian, by the way, uh, did not become a saint. Why not? <laughs> well, he got mixed up in a... Uh, in a, uh, a group that eventually became heretical. Now, yeah. it's unclear that they were heretical at the time he got involved with them. And, and what you need to know about Tertullian is that he was a hothead. He loved to argue, and, uh, and he was kind of a know-it-all. He was a lawyer, <laughs> okay? So, so he's a hothead, he's a lawyer, and he had a real problem with laxity in the church, with um, uh, uh, what he saw as an excess of mercy being extended to sinners. And he saw this tendency in the popes of his time, 
and he mm -hmm. railed against it, but also in the bishops in Africa. So he allied himself with a more rigorous movement. Now, they were, they were a, a kind of Pentecostal movement, the Montanists. Mm -hmm. uh, they, uh, they, they claimed to have special charismatic gifts, and they claimed to have... Especially the prophecy. Prophecy, yes. But they lived, they lived strictly moral lives, and that attracted him to them. Mm -hmm. And so he started hanging around with them. He became identified with them. He started to write in their mode. And at that point, he vanishes from history. He vanishes from relevance, which is very interesting. Once you start distancing yourself from the church, you become irrelevant, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, and he did. And, and we don't even know how he died in the end because his, his last years are just a big question mark, whereas before that, everybody knew what he was doing. Yes. The Montanist and, movement, by the way, got very weird very quickly, yes. as you might imagine, with a group based on spontaneous prophecy. Yeah, and they put the prophecies they were receiving as being more important than what's written in Scripture. Than a bunch of bishops, yes. as, uh, as uh, Tertullian put it. So both, both Scripture and the magisterium. Yeah. Now, in, in addition to Tertullian and Cyprian, because uh, uh, I do want to, uh, it's, it's so fascinating to talk about Northwest Africa, but the, the, another source, another great theologian from there was? Well, Arnobius, mm -hmm. who first proposed Pascal's wager, what we know as Pascal's wager, that first arose in, in Africa from Arnobius, who was an apologist, mostly writing apologetics against paganism. Uh, after Arnobius, there was Lactantius, who wrote mm -hmm. the first catechism in history. Again, this is something that comes out of Africa and is a gift to the church. He's the first one to take this initiative to write a little vademecum uh, for those who want to know the basics of the faith. Uh, so, so where do you go from there? Well, from there, you go to the big gun. You go to St. Augustine of Hippo. Yes. Because there, he's one of the most important intellectuals in all of human history. Mm -hmm. Certainly one of the most important thinkers in the history of the church. He's the, the, author, out, the, only, the author outside the scriptures um, to be quoted most often by the catechism. And the author, again, outside scripture to be quoted most often by St. Thomas Aquinas in his Summa. Mm -hmm. So he is, he is the go-to guy. He's the one everyone in the West recognizes as the great theological authority. Yeah, he absolutely dominated Oh. theology for the first 800 years after he died. And still so today. From, right. and, and then was picked up by Thomas, right. uh, who brought another perspective, but also was himself this incredible genius uh, from Italy. Similar kinds and, of mind. And then, you know, both of them continue to be read to this day. Uh, after the Bible, I, one of the most popular books in the history of the world is St. Augustine's Confessions. I have met so many people who were converted by that book. Yeah. And in it, he really invented the genre of the autobiography. Yeah. Yeah. And when people become, um, you know, sort of often left field, uh, they oftentimes attack uh, St. Augustine. You know, they go right, they, they, they hate him. Uh, I remember Matthew Fox just, just 
thought that Augustine was the cause of the nuclear arms race. <laughs> Uh, no, a, a spear and sword race, maybe, yes. but not. But anyway, right. but the, he's that important. Yes. I, I, this is a, a great introduction to that part of Africa and the importance for our Latin liturgy that becomes the Roman liturgy that we still use. But what about Egypt, Egypt. and Ethiopia? This is Africa, too. Right. A lot of people don't think of Egypt. Egypt as Africa, but it is. It is, it is. And Alexandria in Egypt was the cultural capital of the ancient world. It was yep. the intellectual capital of the ancient world. Yeah. That's where the great library was, where the kings tried to amass all the books that had ever been written. So they had this goal, probably never achieved it, but they had a lot of books there. And if you wanted to do research, you went to Alexandria. Yeah, and, and there uh, a combination of Greek writing was done as well as Coptic, which is the, the word Egypt comes from the word Coptic. Yes. And uh, it, it was the language of ancient Egypt. And you see the Coptic Christians, you can say, ah, these people look like the pharaohs. <laughs> you yes. know, this is to me a fascinating topic, but I'm afraid we've, you know, gone to the end of the time we have. We want to uh, open this up for your questions and comments. So uh, we'll come back in a couple minutes. Please stay with us and call in with your questions and comments, please. Thank you very much. We are here with uh, Mike Aquilina discussing his new book, Africa and the Early Church, The Almost Forgotten Roots of Catholic Christianity. Uh, again, it's written by Mike Aquilina. It is item number A302, A302. And it is available at EWTNRC.com. Ready for some questions? I'm ready. Let's start off with this gentleman here from our studio audience. Sir, where are you from? Hello, Father Mitch. I am from Texas. Great. Good to have you here. Always nice Thank to have folks in the Republic. So what, what can we do for you? Um, I was wondering whether any apostles that traveled to Africa to bring the Gospels there in this time frame. Okay. That's a great question. Yeah, yeah. That's a great question. And... Uh, I don't know of any legends of any apostles reaching Africa, but we have evidence of Christianity reaching Africa in the apostolic generation, a little bit um, in the Acts of the Apostles. For example, when, when St. Luke is telling the story of the first Christian Pentecost, he mentions all of the places people came from, and he mentions that they came from Libya. Mm -hmm. So there are Africans who are there in Jerusalem for the feast who are converted by the gospel at mm -hmm. that moment, right? And they're numbered among the Christians at that, that beautiful moment uh, at the birth of the church. 
And of course, Simon Kyrene, or Simon of Cyrene. I was getting there, yeah. yeah. Yeah, go ahead. No, I mean, so he was, he obviously, he was an African, right? right? And he bore the cross of Christ. And what's interesting about Simon is that when we hear the story in the gospel, it mentions his sons as if they would be known to the Christian congregation because they were Christians too. Simon surely converted because he was venerated as a saint from very early in Christian history. The church knew the names of his sons. We can be sure that Simon was an apostle, an evangelist, um, who went out there and made converts for the gospel. And then... And, and, and I... I think I remember his two sons, Alexander and Rufus. Alexander and Rufus right. are also listed side by side in Romans chapter 16. You're right. Along with their mother. Huh. So it seems that the whole family had become Christian. Right. And th this is where you get to be a geek paying attention <laughs> to the list of names and you start liking to study the list of names, but that it's important. And St. Mark, who mentions the names of his sons, Alexander and Rufus, lived in Rome, and St. Paul was writing to the Romans that included, you know, that Simon of Cyrene's sons, Alexander and Rufus. So this is most likely what's uh, and, some of the early African Christians. And Mark, of course, made his way to Alexandria as the first bishop there. Yes. So, so you have that going on. But, you know, the very important scene in the Acts of the Apostles is the Ethiopian eunuch. Yes. Here we have a court official from the queen of Ethiopia. She's in, he's in Jerusalem for the festival. So obviously, you know, here's someone with a Jewish background who's living in Ethiopia, goes back for the feast days. He hears the gospel. He's trying to read Isaiah, remember? Yes. Right? He's the prophet Isaiah. And it's Philip who kind of opens the text for him by introducing him to Jesus, by telling him the gospel. And the man is converted, asks to be baptized. Now, when that guy goes back home, don't you think he's going to tell others about Jesus? Don't you think he's going to bring others to see the light of the gospel? Don't you think he's going to bring others to baptism? Because he's an influential man. He's a court official in Ethiopia. So I have to believe from these hints that we have in the Acts of the Apostles, in the Gospels, that, that yeah, you have, um, you have uh, the gospel reaching Africa at a very early date, soon after Pentecost. And not just one part, but right. Ethiopia in the south, right? Alexandria on the Mediterranean coast in the northeast, and then Christianity being spread uh, in northwest Africa. So it's as the well. three regions we're talking about, and Christianity likely reached all three of those regions early on. Mm -hmm. And so this, as it it spreads, um, it takes different shapes. Oh, yes. You know, the, um, for instance, the Egyptians uh, had a combination culture of Greek-speaking people because Alexander the Great had conquered Egypt and the rulers had been Greek-speaking. But you also have in Ethiopia 
uh, Africans who spoke a Semitic language. It's actually fairly close to Arabic linguistically. So, uh, and then you had Christians in Egypt speaking Coptic, the uh, a developed form of the ancient language of Egypt. Mm -hmm. All of that, plus the Latin Christians, it's very diverse. It really is. Uh, so, uh, so you hit all of those areas very early in history. At least I believe that's what happened. In order for the church to get where we know it was around 170 AD, I think it would have to have an early development, kind of a long stretch uh, for, for people to, uh, to take the faith and, uh, and make something of their own of it. And we see, again, three very different uh, Christian cultures there in, in Africa, mm -hmm. three different languages. If not languages. four, with, when, you, uh, with, uh, when you distinguish the Greeks in who Egypt. lived in, in Alexandria and the Coptic-speaking, more traditional, ancient Egyptian people. In the countryside, yeah, yes. Yeah, in the countryside. And they started to exercise more influence as monasticism developed. People left the cities for the countryside, for the desert, and you have the first great flourishing of monasticism, Christian monasticism, happening in Egypt so that the desert became a city, as they say. Uh, everyone wanted to go and meet Anthony and receive spiritual direction from him or just touch him. Right? They wanted to, to see this celebrity, Anthony, who was living out there, and communities formed around him. So we have this new phenomenon in the church. It's not entirely new, but monasticism first flourishes in Africa, in Egypt, in the Coptic areas of Egypt. And this is very important to recognize, that St. Benedict was inspired by the the life of St. Anthony of the Desert. Anthony, we think of it, you know, Antonio is Italian or something. <laughs> no, it's an Egyptian name. Yeah. And, you know, St. Anthony of the Desert, his life was written by? Athanasius, another great African. And Athanasius, his, his, his biography of Anthony became a worldwide bestseller had a profound influence on the great minds of that time. Augustine mentions it, for example, in his Confessions, overhearing people reading it aloud and how he was influenced by that hearing of it. Jerome mentions it as well. So it becomes a powerful book for spreading monasticism, not only through Egypt, but throughout the world. It really becomes like wildfire. And a key inspiration of the Western father of monasticism, St. Benedict, you know, so that monasticism gets started and with that, all the flourishing of religious orders that has, uh, you know, developed over the last uh, 1600 years. Well, it was fashionable for a, for a while for Westerners to go to Egypt to learn monasticism and then bring it back to places like France, mm -hmm. right? To take Egyptian monasticism and then Frenchify it, uh, you know, Gallify it, make it make it our own. And so you have that going on in the centuries leading up to Benedict. Yes. So he was he was a grandson, really, of 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 Anthony. Yes, and I think this is a, a very important element of. That, that has transformed Christianity. Of course. You know, to religious life 
is not the only way of Christianity, but it's an extremely important part of Christian life with those roots in Africa. And again, I have to emphasize that all of these things are gifts of the African church. These are gifts that we Europeans, you know, I come, my people come from Sicily, so it's not too far from Africa, uh, but, uh, but these are gifts that we received from the African church. They were developed, richly developed in Africa before they were exported. Mm-hmm. And one of the lines you have in your book that I think is uh, well taken, Africa was, you know, reverse of what people in the modern world think. Um, the civilized and culturally alive people and theologically active people were from Africa. Yes. The barbarians were blonde-haired, blue-eyed people coming out of Germany. Yes, <laughs> yes. They were pouring in as barbarians, and they're the ones who messed up the church in Africa. That's right. By invading Africa and uh, forcing through persecution of Orthodox Christians, forcing uh, Arian heresy. Augustine lives to see the end of his great civilization as he's on his deathbed and and the Vandals are are closing in on his city, besieging his city. Mm -hmm. And, And he sees that the end is coming. The great thing is that Augustine has already laid the foundations for the civilization that would follow, mm-hmm. the medieval culture that would replace Roman society mm-hmm. in, in, in Europe. Yes, and by God's providence, a couple of trunks of his books you know, were put on ships and saved from destruction by the Arian heretics. Now, Arius himself uh, had started his heresy in Alexandria. Yeah. Yeah, talk about that. Because there, there are a couple of heretics. Sibelius, who came from Rome, but went to uh, Africa. And, uh, and then Arius. What's going on with these heresies? Well, in the case of Arius, what you have is, is uh, a man, he might have been Libyan in origin. He went to Antioch to do his studies. And in Antioch, he came under the influence of some subordinationist heretics. They believed that the son was not co-eternal and co-equal with the father, that the son was in, in, in some fundamental sense uh, subordinate to the father, that he was a creature. Now, the greatest of creatures, but a creature nonetheless. Mm-hmm. So immediately alarms start going off for us all these years later because mm-hmm. we've been formed by the Africans like Athanasius who taught us otherwise, right? Who insisted that, that you cannot go there uh, because other, if you do that, you undermine the core doctrines of Trinity and incarnation. Mm-hmm. It doesn't work if you go the way of Arius. Mm-hmm. But Arius was a really clever guy. He was a great communicator. And he was a great schmoozer, right? And he knew how to write songs. Yes. People were singing his heretical theology. So he would come up with a little slogan. There was a time when he was not. There was when he was not. To say that there, there was a before Jesus was born, before Jesus was. There was when he was not. There was when he was not. And you set that to a melody, it becomes an ad jingle that you can't get out of your head. Yep. And that's the way Arianism took every place by storm. He fortified that by schmoozing. 
he had a way of ingratiating himself uh, with the very wealthy and the very powerful by flattering them, mm -hmm. that they were more intelligent than the rabble. And they understood his, his doctrine, whereas these other people didn't. Mm -hmm. So he had enormous success. Jerome said it was overnight. It was like the world awoke to find itself Arian. Yes. And one man, really, not, not one man only, but in the end, it was Athanasius himself, this, this theologian, dark-skinned, red-haired theologian from Alexandria, young man, who stood up to Arius. He, he was, at the time, the theological advisor to his bishop, Alexander, but he really did come up with the, uh, the, the, the response to Arius that just demolished the heresy intellectually. But the schmoozing still prevailed. And so Athanasius, the greatest patriarch of Alexandria in its history, was, was bishop for 45 years. 17 of those years, he was deposed and in exile. He was exiled five times by four different emperors. Yeah, this is something, um, you know, that is uh, a very important part. And we still have a phrase called Athanasius against the world, <laughs> that when the world has gone uh, against the gospel, people like Athanasius stay with the gospel. Yes. The ones who go with the world, a good example would be Eusebius of Nicomedia, who was a bishop, close friends with Emperor Constantine. He baptized Constantine on Constantine's deathbed. And you see that Eusebius was looking for power and influence as a bishop, and he wanted to be the patriarch of Constantinople. Um, but it was, he's pretty much forgotten. Athanasius is the one that we still look to as our teacher, while Eusebius of Nicomedia is you know, a non-factor. He was a giant, little man, but now he's a giant. Really, he's the one who articulated the, uh, the doctrine of the Council of Nicaea in the most memorable way yes. and brought it out there in arguments. He had to face down emperors. You know, and the, the Emperor Constantius, as a matter of fact, was the first one to suggest that Athanasius against the world phrase yes. because he was mocking him, saying, you're all alone. Nobody stands with you. And Athanasius didn't care. Yeah. He wanted to be on the side of the truth. He wanted to be on the side of the gospel because he believed it was true. Exactly, exactly. We actually have a, a call. I, I, we get carried away if we're not careful. <laughs> uh, Rena, where are you calling from? Uh, Cambria, California, Father. Great. Well, what? I want to say to comment, do you know who said, Vox Ecclesiae Sum? <laughs> no, I don't know that quote. Could you say that again? It's hard to hear you. Oh, um, Vox Ecclesiae Sum. So, so I, I am the voice of the church. Where was that from? St. Augustine. And do you think he was a little bit proud when he said that? Do you, <laughs> do you know where he quote, said that or wrote that? Um, I read that in Peter Brown, Peter Brown's biography. And, uh -huh. um, it was, I memorized it, you know, I'm a Latin teacher, etc. So, you know, I was, it stuck with me. And 
he must have known that all the prolific writings he was doing, you know, were, uh, were, were, were like Mr. Aquilina says, center, making the center of the Latin, of the Rome, Roman world. It took over, Hipporagius took over Rome, took over, you know, for uh, the Roman, uh, you know, the writing, the center of the, of the Latin world. I think Augustine had a keen sense of himself as a bishop. Mm -hmm. that he was the voice of the church, uh, that he had a sense of the magisterium. Uh, Augustine also had a sense that he was a man under authority because yeah. he is the one who, who gave us another great Latin line that, that rings down the centuries, Roma lacuda causa finita. Rome has spoken. The matter is settled, right? It's over. It's finished. So he had a sense of of the authority he had to answer to, but he also had a, a sense of fatherhood within his own church, that within his own church, he was the voice of the, voice of the church. Yeah, and to respond to you, Rena, I, I don't see that as a statement of pride, but because one of the things about Augustine is that he was very much a gentleman. He wasn't self-deprecating, no. But he was, uh, you know, a gentleman and, and very easygoing in contrast to the curmudgeonly uh, St. Jerome. Yes. Uh, Jer St. Jerome had a nasty temper and it comes out in his writings. It gives people with bad tempers real hope of sanctity because if he can get canonized, <laughs> Anybody can get to heaven with a temper. But uh, whereas Augustine was much more of a peacemaker and worked very hard, for instance, to end heresies like the Donatist heresy and such. The Manichaeans. And he had, he had a, uh, and with, you know, bring about the Manichaeans to the church. The Pelagians, right. Yep. Yeah, he was, so he was very, very important with that. He... Uh, he and Athanasius were very different men, very different personalities. Yes. Uh, but I think one thing they had in common was a sense of confidence in the gospel. Yes. And, and a sense of certainty about their position in the world uh, where God had called them. Yep. So that they, they had a sense of office yep. and the right exercise of their office, the just exercise of their office. So I think that that confidence can come across as pride, but I don't think it is. Yeah, I, I don't either. I, I see them knowing they're bishops mm -hmm. and they have, they're answerable to Christ, mm -hmm. but they are faithful to Christ and to all of his teaching and they won't sway. That was true of Cyprian. Yes. Very, very strongly. Uh, I think whereas Tertullian had that sense of the truth and commitment to the truth, but he went off on a tangent. He was impressed by Tertullian. Yes. <laughs> yes. yes. Yeah. So this is a different thing. Uh, this is a, a, a great area for people to learn more about. Uh, the book is called Africa and the Early Church, The Almost Forgotten Roots of Catholic Christianity. It was written by our guest, Mike Aquilina. You can get it at EWTNRC.com where it is item number A302, A302. And uh, it's very readable and very informative 
and the more we know about our, our church and our faith, the better off we are. Thank you very much for coming here and for writing this book. Appreciate it very much. Thank you for having me back. And may the Lord bless all of you and keep you and cause His face to shine upon you and lead you in all of your ways by His peace. Almighty God bless you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. You know, and we can bring Mike over here to you over the last 25 years or so and all the other guests and programs and series that we have only because the network is brought to you by you. So please remember to keep us in between your gas bill, your electric bill, and your cable bill, and we'll be able to pay all of our bills too. God bless you, and thank you.